Welcome to Pandemics and the Liberal Arts, a podcast series from the faculty of Bethel University. I'm Chris Garretts, professor of history at Bethel. Uh, Pandemics and the Liberal Arts, I think the first part of our title probably makes instant sense to everyone. Like just about all American faculty and students around the United States, we've moved online. We are teaching and doing other things that we do at a distance through remote learning and teaching. But what does that have to do with the liberal arts? Why should we care about things like history and the other humanities, about the sciences, the social sciences, the fine arts, and everything that we think of as part of a liberal arts education at a school like Bethel? Well, this series is gonna explore the connections between living through a pandemic like COVID-19 and other sorts of diseases and what we do in the liberal arts. And there are at least a couple of sources for this uh, podcast for me. One I just want to mention comes from a historian named Jonathan Wilson, who keeps a blog about teaching and history called Blue Book Diaries. And early in, er, earlier in April 2020, he wrote a post on the importance of liberal arts during a pandemic. And he said a couple of things that got my attention. One is he thought that the kind of disciplines that we think of as part of the liberal arts help us to conceptualize a really big, complicated problem. It's difficult in the middle of a crisis to step back and think about what's happening, why it's happening, what solutions exist, what the costs and benefits of them are, how this might affect us moving forward. But our disciplines help us to ask those kind of questions and maybe to start to find answers to them. But he also thought about it as a problem of citizenship. Jonathan wrote that the liberal arts help citizens, quote, live responsibly together during a crisis while maintaining their own personal freedom and respecting each other's humanity. Now, when he said the liberal arts, Jonathan was very clear, he didn't just mean history, he didn't just mean the humanities. He talked about the importance, for example, of mathematics. Think about all those graphs and charts, tables of numbers we've had to try to interpret. He did talk about sciences like biology and chemistry. But I think it made sense to me as I thought about what I'm doing as a history professor, as a teaching historian, a researcher, and a writer. And that really crystallized for me when I was having a conversation last week with one of my Bethel history colleagues, Amy Poppinga, who joins us now. Hey, Amy, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thank you, Chris. So, Amy, and last I week. I, I appreciate that last week you entertained my phone call um, so that I could pretend that we were hanging out having coffee in our offices like we would usually be doing. Well, that's almost a whole other podcast is just how different our lives yeah. are because we don't see each other. I mean, and so it, it was remarkable that it took us maybe 10 minutes of doing a, a Google Hangout or something. And, and out of that, we, we came up with an idea for something. We started to think about we were talking to each other about how this is shaping our classes, how we're talking about it, and we'll get that in a second, but we started to think about why our discipline matters right now, why a liberal arts education is not dispensable. It's actually maybe more essential in the middle of a pandemic, even when we're doing in this weird online remote fashion. And, and so we started thinking maybe we should do a podcast and uh, what, less than a week later, here we are. Okay. So we're... We're doing the pilot of this, and then in a couple of weeks, we're hoping to pick this up with some other departments at Bethel. So we'll say more about that before we go. But uh, let's talk about history. And Amy, I think you're absolutely the best person to start with because you actually teach a class in which epidemics were already a key part of it. Um, so our kind of standard first question we have in mind is, how are we talking about COVID-19 in classes right now? So uh, do you want to start with history and the human environment, what that class is and how epidemics fit into it? Yes, for sure. So I teach this class, as you mentioned, called History in the Human Environment. And uh, this is the course we offer in our department that exposes our students to the um, sub-discipline of history that's called environmental history, which is one of the actually newest fields of history that has been um, around for, well, for now, now about uh, 50, 60 years or so. Um, and environmental history 
connects and looks at the intersection between physical geography. So I always say to students, like, look at, look around us, everything that we see in terms of vegetation, thinking about climate, all of the stuff that would exist even if we humans or animals weren't here. And then we take that and we push it into connection with what's called human geography. And, and human geography is, I mean, how we, like the, the systems that we humans create in response to geography. So like the way that we organize ourselves, our language, our, um, our cultural and behavior habit, behavioral habits, our um, things like our gross domestic product, our literacy rates, these various types of things. And so we revisit history, we kind of do a, a big broad sweep of global history by revisiting a lot of um, topics that students have studied in other classes, but we're asking this question of what role has nature played in historical studies. So it's a lot of fun because it's sort of like, hey kids, you've read this book before, but now we're gonna look at it um, by focusing on you know, the character, like the, the sister and little women who nobody ever talks about. So we're gonna kind of be able to look at um, things that we maybe have familiarity with through a completely different lens. And yes, as you mentioned, one of the major factors that um, we study in history in the human environment as an aspect of human geography like related to physical geography is disease. And so we actually just before um, we we left for spring break, we're studying disease. So we we look at how, how do diseases work um, and get a bit into the, the biology of disease. And then we look specifically at disease through history and how, and and we we look specifically at like this, this triangle of what, what um, a medical geographer, Melinda Mead calls the human, she calls it the um, triangle of human ecology and it's the connection between human behavior, um, uh, habitat, the way that we actually sort of like, the way that we settle um, and the way that we organize ourselves. Um, and uh, then she takes a look at how that um, is intertwined with disease and how those things factor in together. And so it's been really interesting for my students because uh, when we returned from spring break, uh, virtually not together, we had just left off with talking about disease and then we started to study the Greek empire. And the very first reading that we did was Thucydides um, aspect of the, the, the component of the Peloponnesian war where mm -hmm. Thucydides is talking about the plague at Athens. Mm -hmm. And uh, then we moved into the Roman empire. And so last week we were doing the various plagues that hit the Roman empire. and. Um, specifically took a look at uh, how Christians responded to the plagues in the Roman Empire. And then, because it just gets better this week, we've actually been looking at Europe in the Middle Ages. And so tomorrow I'll be having conversations with students about the bubonic plague. And so um, I've been saying to them, you know, I, I, I always, because, you know, we all love what we teach. I always like to come into the classroom saying, you guys, this is so relevant this, you know, you gotta really take this seriously. It makes a lot of sense, and I though I and they're probably tired of me saying it right now because I just keep saying it, obviously. But it has been um, it's strange combination of uh, trying to find the right balance between the the seriousness and the grim uh, reality of the situation we find ourselves in. Also with with truly like the joy of connection and teaching, 
when students make connections about what they're studying and how that actually really makes sense with what's happening around them. Right. You can still see light bulbs come on even when we're doing this yeah. uh, at a distance. I mean, so Amy, you had been doing these topics anyway, like that would they, I assume we're in your schedule yeah. or your syllabus, mm -hmm. right? Do you have a sense, because you've taught this class a few times before, as you compare this student group experience to previous ones, do you feel like they're connecting with this history differently because they're living through their own version of it? Or they, yeah, I absolutely. For them? I absolutely do. And um, I guess to give an example of that, um, one of, in, in my class, we have five course themes. They, they pretty much guide the entire course. I call them environmental history bumper stickers. Students <laughs> memorize them at the end of um, most units or sometimes at the end of a reading or a film, I'll say, I'll, I'll like to, to, to spur discussion, I'll say, you guys tell me which theme best fits. And what they find over and over again is like, actually there's no wrong answer. Like you can mm -hmm. make any of the themes fit, mm -hmm. but um, one of the central themes in history and the human environment is trade-offs, colon. We are forced to set priorities and that when we, and, and so the so students were just talking to me about this, the fact that right now we're experiencing trade-offs, right? Mm -hmm. Like they're living, they're living the trade-offs. They understand that we have a immediate, immediate concern. We have an immediate type of crisis. We have to prioritize that crisis, but good environmental historians are also thinking about what are the trade-offs? Like what are not only the things we probably could, could all generate an idea about and know, I mean, we're living certain types of trade-offs right now in terms of, mm -hmm. Um, what students have lost, um, what we all have lost, but we also know that there's unforeseen trade-offs. And so we actually had a really interesting conversation the other day based on what we've learned from looking at sort of what happened with the Romans, looking at what happened with the Greeks. We actually had a conversation about like, what are the ramifications? What are the unforeseen trade-offs going to be three years from now, five years from now, 10 years from now? And um, I was really impressed with students' ability to sort of talk about these things like, well, if you, um, if you think about what, a, what disease has done before and we, we sort of put education on hold uh, because we don't have access in the same way, whether we're just talking about um, education in its most simple, simple form like literacy and reading. Well, we've seen in history what happens when we have to put education to the side. Mm -hmm. And so um, the students and I just did a reading correlating thinking about that now in relation to looking at sort of like what, what happened with the Syrian refugee crisis um, when you essentially halt education in a society. So, th so that ability to kind of um, think, think through, be a critical thinker, think about it in a different way is something that's really impressed me. And then um, just another quick example, uh, one of the, the textbook authors that we use, um, it's actually a father-son textbook duo, which I think is amazing. They're both environmental historians. One is deceased, but is um, J.R. And, and William McNeil, Bill, I like to call him, but um, they, they have a textbook called The Human Web. And their, their central guiding principle is that um, what drives humanity forward, like what drives history forward is the human ambition that we have to alter our reality to match our hope. Like this is what has, you know, led to technological innovation, new ways of doing things, um, unfortunately, conquering other societies that like mm -hmm. we are always trying to make things better for us. Um, and so I, I just have uh, so appreciated that students are like, oh, my gosh, you know, and, and so we actually start out many of our class because we're meeting together each week. Um, and they're doing writing, we just sort of start with that idea, like, what are you seeing right now around you? that is an example of this sort of hypothesis that the McNeils have. 
So when they mention hope, it, it kind of takes me into another big topic, which I asked sure. you about, because in addition to teaching environmental history, um, your other big field is Islamic studies. You're accustomed to studying the history of religion. Of course, religion does much to shape human hopes. Um, how, how do you talk with students right now about the role of religion, either in that class or maybe other classes as uh, I mean, does it give us ways of coping with something like COVID-19 or another pandemic? Yeah, no. Um, yes, I teach a class. Right now I'm teaching a class that's a, uh, again, kind of a broad sweeping overview, a history of Islam course. But I'm also teaching an honors level course on spiritual narrative. Um, and so it's, uh, again, you know, when you love what you teach, you're like, see all these connections, students. But mm -hmm. they're they're really quite true. And in history of the human environment, we've been, we, we've, we actually study sort of what like one of the first conceptions that any humans, like when we when we kind of look broadly at human societies, one of their first conceptions is like a religious worldview. Um, some people call it like a spirit world or a spiritual worldview. And we look at the fundamental sort of um, like, what is religion for? Um, and that the purpose of religion is to provide us with a framework. It's um, it orients us. It gives us a sense of it. it we, we seek answers from it. Um, and it gives us a way to go about our world in a way that makes sense. Now, um, we have to be careful with that idea because then we say, okay, well, what about like in a time of crisis? Well, this is where religion is so interesting. And this is where Christianity is so interesting. And this is where in my um, classes on Islam, conversations right now about Islamic practice and Islamic theology are so interesting because embedded within all three of the Abrahamic traditions is... Uh, are, I should say, it's like it is and an are, here's what we do in times of crisis. Mm -hmm. Here's what you do with suffering. Um, here is how you cry out to God. Um, here are ways to go about understanding suffering. And when I say understanding suffering, I'm, I'm not going to get here into the, say, like the root causes, but I am going to say that embedded within each of those traditions is what, um, what what Christian historian Rodney Stark calls like a prescription for action, mm -hmm. which is that like our scriptures, as well as those in the Quran, as well as those in the um, the Torah and the Talmud say, like, here's how here's what we do in suffering. And here's how God sits with us in suffering. And here's how then if you I think as, as a, a Christian, here's how we look to the person of Jesus to show us how to offer comfort to others and how to sit with them in their suffering. And um, we've had a lot of good conversations about that, that have, I think made myself as well as, as just an anecdotally thing students have said, so grateful um, for religion right now. And I, I, it kind of actually made me want to, um, I'm kind of ready to argue with anyone who suggests that religion sort of quote causes more harm than it does good. Because I, I, I sort of see all around me right now, both in my Muslim circles as um, Muslim friends are preparing for the world's strangest Ramadan because Ramadan mm -hmm. is starting very soon. It's very communally oriented. Um, I see all around me right now people who um, have looked to their religion not only as a source of comfort, but also because it provides for them a way to move their um, feelings of fear, their feelings of insecurity, their big questions. It, it, it's given them a way to actually move that into action. And that's, that's looked different. And that's looked like, all, you know, that that's taken a number of different manifestations, mm -hmm. but this is what has kept religion going. So to tie it all back to history, 
that is the value of the historical study of something like religion and um, religious groups is seeing how has religion helped people move forward, move through, you know, move towards um, God in different ways in different times. Right. Well, that leads us pretty well into the next kind of set of questions I wanted to talk about here with us and then other people. Um, so why is our discipline so important right now? What, what kind of distinctive insights can history provide to people living through a pandemic? Is it, I mean, in many ways, it might seem relevant. In other ways, it's like, who has time for history? Um, so I'll start <laughs> with something from my own class, because I'm teaching our department's gateway course called Introduction to History. And so the way I came back from our extended spring break was just to have a discussion forum where I asked them, where are you seeing people use history as a way of um, understanding, conceptualizing, coping with this crisis? And, and right away, the first topic we went to is historical analogy. The, the, the problem with the yeah. crisis is it feels like this is the first time we've been through this. We don't know what to do. We're struggling for leadership. We don't want, know where answers are coming from. And so like we go to the past. Can we find parallel situations where something not identical to, but similar to this gives us an analog. So I had done that in my class, but also I've, I've done some blogging about this. Like before our spring break, I wrote a post about Christian responses to the influenza pandemic that shut down churches in the fall of 1918 in the United States and other countries. And it was really fascinating. It was, I wrote it kind of before most churches had actually closed for COVID, but it anticipated just about the entire spectrum of responses we've heard. Right in 1918, there were Christians who defiantly refused to stop meeting. You know, they would, there was a Catholic priest in Cincinnati who forced the police to actually arrest him rather than not conduct the mass. Uh, there are others who argued that part of being a good Christian is to learn from science, to respect authority. There are others who took it as a cue to be creative. How, how can we do church differently? How can we rethink the nature of something that was never meant to be a, um, a, a habit, a routine, and institute? And so it was so interesting to hear those echoes from really 100 years ago, uh, predicting, anticipating, and, and maybe teaching us something about our own responses right now. I assume that comes up, uh, especially in environmental history. You know, do you, do you talk about analogies with these, whether it's bubonic plague or ancient uh, epidemics? Oh, Yes, absolutely. And so, um, as I said, like last week when we were doing Rome, Roman Empire, we, we read this reading by um, Rodney Stark, who I mentioned him a minute ago, but we look at, well, what did Christians do in um, a time of great crisis? And what was the outcome of that? What was the result of that? And what students I think were drawn to in, in, in a different way than what I would say usually comes out when we do that reading, students were really drawn to the fact that it was like not just the actions of Christians in terms of caring for other people, but they pulled out of this reading that we did by Rodney Stark, something that was also embedded in the Thucydides reading, which was that both societies made observations, not understanding the, physi the physiology of this mm -hmm. observation at the time, they both made observation about the fact that hopefulness seemed to have some kind of impact on whether or not people lived through the disease. Mm. And I think that that is just sort of fascinating. And, and, and now we actually better understand the physiology of that and the connection between mental, spiritual, and physical well-being, not to suggest that that means that when people sadly do die or suffer, it's because they did not necessarily um, embody a, hope, a sense of hopefulness or faith. But but it, it was so interesting to me that students really picked up on that piece um, and drew that out and, and sort of being able to see that traced throughout 
history and we look at um, how societies recover from war and we look at how people think they'll never laugh again and they do and we look at uh, the innovation that comes out of times of crisis um, that is something to draw um, not only spiritual hope but also just you know even if you have no no um, attachment to a th you know theism of any kind like there's still such um, hopefulness to be found in that and, and a form of comfort that can be found in that I, I think the historian and me much like you over the last couple of weeks I'm so tired of hearing people say this is unprecedented because the historian <laughs> is like this is not <laughs> unprecedented I mean it is in the it sure it is in, in certain mm -hmm. respects but no this isn't unprecedented and what it teaches us also about sitting in historical suffering with others revisiting a new um, things that we've studied that maybe did not feel particularly personal um, engaging a different type of kind of historical empathy. We always talk about that as mm -hmm. professors and the importance of not passing sort of like historical judgment. And um, we, I just had a conversation with a student the other day um, because I always tell my students like, don't be judgy of the past because believe me, people will be judgy of us, right? Like people will judge you, like mm -hmm. um, they will, we can't escape that. And um, a student the other day was making the comment like, oh gosh, I've already sort of been thinking about like, how do we really need to be thoughtful about who we're really caring for in our community? Because you know that there's voices that aren't being heard. And then 50 years from now, we're gonna look back and we're gonna see who really got left out. And um, I think that to me is like, that to me is the most important aspect of being a historian is um, our job is to bring forward um, voices that get left out. Yeah, empathy is number two on my list. And uh, number three, then, I mean, I was trying to think there are a few ways to frame this. One is I think history gives us a kind of longer view. It gives us a different perspective. But also occurred to me, it, it sometimes is useful for moving some questions that are very contemporary to less contentious territory. Like one, one odd aspect of COVID-19 is we're having all these, I mean, the way we think about a public health crisis um, is being shaped by political polarization, at least in some yeah. ways, right? And so even things that don't seem like they really should be political discussions become political discussions. Um, and sometimes I've found when, I, when I'm talking about topics like war or politics, it's, it's almost helpful that I can remove them back even 50 years or a century, even if it's still the United States, right? That it feels maybe a little bit less threatening to people who are used to having their hackles up about political discussions yes. and don't want things being politicized if we're talking about 1918 instead of 2020 or if we're talking about 14th century Europe instead of 21st century America maybe we can still have a discussion about some of those really important issues but it, it feels a little bit less like oh this is a red state versus a blue oh, state kind wait. of solution Chris absolutely you know it's interesting because I've, I've kind of completely removed myself from politics over the last uh Three, three years now, and it's terrible to be like, and I've, I've been just fine. Um, but um, I, I just, it, like, it, again, like we were studying the Roman Empire, students were looking at um, the ways that Romans dealt with human waste, which was this huge issue in the mm. Roman Empire. And the Romans really developed this amazing, um, essentially like sewer system throughout Rome. However, um, there were different types of access to how you got rid of waste based on your class. And everybody lives so closely together that you have wealthy people living next door to, and sometimes in the same building as, um, you know, the, the, the poorest in society. And what students were kind of able to make this, um, I mean, this is, may, may, sound, may seem to others like a, a crass analogy, but I think it works for exactly what you're saying. Um, 
if you've got wealthy people being able to remove their human waste, which we know, you know, that waste is a harbinger of all kinds of disease and problems. <laughs> um, that's great. But guess what? If your neighbors don't get to remove their waste in the same way and they're dumping it on the same street that you're walking on and you're all breathing the same air, um, how great of a solution is that? What good does that do for you? You're still sharing this community and you're and, right. and so that led to a very interesting conversation about like nationalized healthcare, right? Mm. And access to healthcare because mm. um, we are all sharing this space and I've never had that conversation before and I've been teaching this class for 10 years, you know? Yeah. And so that was so, um, so interesting, but you're right that it has this ability to maybe hit on some of these topics that have become so political and so polarizing and um, we can we can move them out a little bit um, and 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 be able to really get into the root of, of issues and think creatively about them without having to feel like we have to defend a particular side. So, Amy, before we go, I wanted to just think about what else historians do. And kind of the genesis of this is um, I've, I've gone back to a famous sermon that C.S. Lewis preached in I think it was October of 1939 called Learning in Wartime. And it was at Oxford University. We actually have been to the church. They did this out when we take our World War I trip. And his point was that even in the middle of World War II, learning should continue. And yeah. that, that even a total war, and he thought a very necessary, just war, can't occupy all of human attention. And I, I've, I've wondered a few times if that might have a parallel to living through a pandemic, that much as we feel like our discipline can help us make meaning of this, it can point to analogies, it can help us have these discussions, it's not it shouldn't consume all of our attention as historians, that there are other things we should keep on teaching, keep on studying. And, and so I like the idea of closing by, by asking uh, whoever we're talking to, starting with you, what's something else about your discipline that's energizing you right now? Whether it's a research or a writing project, uh, something else happening in a class, maybe a new class yeah. you've got in the works. What, what's, what's one other thing about being a historian that gives you life right now? Oh, absolutely. Um, for me, it is, it continues to be, um, I have over the last couple of years, really spent time and energy and, and sort of shifted some of my research into um, being centered around oral history in a variety of different ways. And I remain captivated by story. And I happened to interview a colleague of ours, um, Professor Eric Leaflad from the Biblical and Theological Studies Department last week for my honors course on spiritual narrative. And he made this comment that as, as Christians, as people who are called to love others, we should be radically curious about mm -hmm. other people, especially people who are different. And that just really, um, that just sort of lighted a fire anew in me for, mm -hmm. I wanna in some respects keep doing the, the work that I have been doing, which, which mainly revolves around telling the stories of Muslims in our community and, um, that is actually like what is giving me passion right now. Like I interviewed a person last week who I've only interviewed twice now, um, but she has such an interesting story. And um, she was essentially, I mean, she, in the home she was raised in, it was a multi-generational family. And um, she had so many great things to say about her grandmother. I just thought, I just need to talk to her grandmother. Like I want to talk to her grandmother. I want to hear from her. I want to um, just sort of hear her story. And um, I'm a pretty simple person and I like, I like the simple <laughs> pleasures in life. I'm kind of a homebody. Um, but that's what, that's the part of history I've always loved. Like I love typical stories. I love people's just dailies. I, I love the people who think, well, you don't want to talk to me. I don't have anything interesting to say. And it's like, oh no, 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 you do. 
um, and we'll we'll find it and we'll get to it because that's actually where it creates connection for us with people. Sometimes history can be, I think, we can so overprivilege, obviously, like the big and the important and the, um, you know, the um, people of sig of significance mm -hmm. that if we feel detached from it, and I think it's just such a great gateway um, for people to engage in history to find that which actually resonates with their simple experiences. Well, I mean, it's been a great way to start. Thanks for talking to us about what you're doing uh, in oral history and environmental history and in all the things you do at Bethel. Um, listeners, thank you for joining us for this first episode of Pandemics in the Liberal Arts. Hopefully, uh, what we talked about with history helps you understand pandemics, but maybe pandemics can help you understand the importance of history, too. If you have questions or comments, you can always email us at channel3900 at gmail.com. Uh, we started with our own discipline, but we're hoping to talk again to Bethel colleagues in other departments. We've thought everyone from kind of humanities neighbors like philosophy and English and theology to the sciences, biology, psychology, mathematics, but also maybe the arts too. So uh, we'll, we'll try to pick that up at the end of April and then run that through the end of our spring semester uh, into May. So thanks again for joining us on Pandemics and Liberal Arts. For Amy Papinka, this is Chris Garrison.